This week on Blue 58, we're going where we have never gone before. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the official podcast of ThePowerSweep.com, the internet's 73rd favorite NFL website. We are very proud of that. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I will be your host this and every week. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. And as you might have guessed from the title, we are going to go in a bit of a different direction than we have ever gone on this program before. But first and foremost, we've got to talk about what happened on Monday night. For the Packers, there was the first drive of the game, and then there was everything else. And really, the everything else started with that blocked field goal on that first drive of the game. You know what happened by now. The running game was more or less non-existent until late, and even then it barely counted. Brett Hundley was not very good, top to bottom, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. The defense, we are doing some things on the defense, uh, was completely predictable, totally underwhelming in the pass rush game, and basically just utterly uninspiring. My question coming out of this game is wondering how different things would really look if the Packers had actually just completely given up on everything. Because I don't know if they have, but I'm not sure how different that would really look. I am, would like to argue that for the Packers right now, Brett Hundley is a much bigger problem than people have so far been willing to admit. And I will explain exactly what I mean about that in just a little bit. But suffice it to say, Things are pretty ugly for the Packers right now, and if the season isn't functionally over this week, it should come to an end within the next couple. They've got the Bears on Sunday. They are not going to be favorites against the Bears for the first time in a very long time. I would be surprised if the Bears do not win, and if the Packers drop below 500, we're not going to see Aaron Rodgers again this season, no matter what, barring something utterly miraculous. A loss to the Bears on Sunday would drop the Packers to 1-3 and three in the division and essentially needing an, uh, a complete miracle to get to the playoffs. I think there's no chance the Packers get to that point. We're, we're not going to see Aaron Rodgers until minicamp next spring. And uh, it'll be great to hear him talk about how, how he's recovered and how he's feeling great and he's 100% then. But uh, it's, it's going to be a while before we see him on the football field for the Packers again. It's not going to be this season. Because why come back if things are just this bad? Another person we're not going to be seeing at all this year as we dive into headline number two is Brian Bulaga. Unfortunately, carted off the field during the fourth quarter of Monday night's game against the Lions. Where does this leave the Packers on the offensive line moving forward? Well, actually not doing too terrible. Uh, they're better equipped to handle the loss of one of their linemen than they were at the start of the season. Uh, Jason Spriggs now returning from injured reserve after an injury in week one against the Seattle Seahawks. Justin McRae, meanwhile, though he was injured on Monday, he says he's fine. He has proven to be a very versatile, useful backup and somebody the Packers would probably strongly consider starting at right tackle and who may get some action there if Jason Spriggs starts at right tackle and then struggles. I think McCray has been consistent enough that the Packers would feel pretty comfortable putting him out there as they're starting right tackle on a pretty consistent basis. Not obviously a long-term solution for them at right tackle, but 
a pretty decent option moving forward. For Brian Bulaga, things get a little bit tricky. Um, He's 28 years old. This is now the second time that he has had a torn ACL. The first time was in 2013. He tore the ACL in his left knee as he was making that switch to left tackle. That, of course, opened the door for uh, David Bakhtiari to step in as the Packers' starting left tackle, a job he has held pretty much since then, except for a couple games when he's been injured, including this season. Bulaga has held down the fort at right tackle since then. He came back fully recovered from that ACL to start the 2014 season, and uh, now he's, he's pretty much good to go for the Packers. Um, or he has been, at least until this year. Last season was the first of the of his entire career where he played or started every game since his rookie season, all the way back in 2010. He also had a hip injury, we should point out, in 2012 that required surgery and ended his season. Now, in theory, the Packers could get out of his contract after the season and only face a $3.2 million cap penalty. I don't think they will, and I don't think there's really any danger for the Packers here sticking with Brian Bulaga and just letting him come back whenever he can come back. The point is, if they wanted to, they could move on. Um, they have put themselves in a pretty good position on the offensive line where they where they have some backups that are at least capable, if not awe-inspiring in both the case of, of, of McRae and Spriggs. But they've got them if they need them. Uh, it's going to be a while before we see Bulaga back on the field. Uh, he is not going to be ready probably for the start of training camp next year, maybe not for the start of the regular season. I would imagine he's probably a pup list candidate and probably rejoins the Packers on the active roster about this point next year. There's really no reason to rush him back, especially if Jason Spriggs begins to play a little bit better. Let's talk about Brett Hundley our third and final headline of the day before we dive into our main topic. Hundley was not good on Monday night, and his stats look way better than they should because of a a couple of things. You had the 48-yard catch-and-run by Randall Cobb, which bumped up Hundley's passing yards way higher than they should have been. Then you had the, the last drive of the game when the Lions had basically said, whatever, you're not going to score enough points to get back in this game. We're just going to make you bleed out the clock. It was almost miraculous that the Packers scored a touchdown there at the end. They needed a pass interference in the end zone and a untimed down to get it done just to pull within 13 points. That's how little the pack or the the Lions cared about the Packers scoring points at the end of the game. It they were not threatened by Brett Hundley and the Packers offense at all. What strikes me though is how similar Hundley is statistically to a blast from the past, a name that you probably haven't thought about since 2013 when Scott Tolzien filled in for uh, Aaron Rodgers the last time he had a broken collarbone. Tolzien came in for Seneca Wallace, uh, who started the first game after Aaron Rodgers broke his collarbone and lasted all of one drive. He, he filled in for Wallace that game. He started the next game, and he started the game after that, but then was pulled midway through that game in favor of Matt Flynn, who carried the Packers the rest of the way until Aaron Rodgers returned uh, from injury. More or less, they've played about the same amount of football. Uh, Tolzien never played for the Packers again after those games. 
and Hundley is going to get more opportunities in the future. But he's roughly at the point where Tolzien was before he got benched in favor of Matt Flynn. Hundley is 56 of 96 passing for 489 yards, one touchdown, and four interceptions in those three games. In the three games where he got extended play, Scott Tolzien, 55 of 90 for 717 yards, one touchdown, and five interceptions. More or less the same. If you thought Brett Hundley's rushing ability was enough of a difference to set him apart from Scott Tolzien, you would be mistaken there. He has eight carries for 69 yards and two touchdowns so far this season. Tolzien, a respectable five carries for 55 yards and one touchdown. I said this up top during our first headline that I thought Brett Hundley was more of a problem than I think people were really willing to admit. And I would like to explore that concept a little bit more right now. I think the Packers are very much limited by what Brett Hundley can bring to the table right now. And it's hurting them a lot. You see missed receivers going wide open down the field. Uh, The Packers have no ability to throw the ball down the field at all. And defenses are realizing this uh, and just loading up against the run. Every part of their offense seems to be hurt by Brett Hundley right now. And unfortunately, this should not be a tremendous surprise. I'd like to read from you the weaknesses portion of Brett Hundley's scouting report prior to the the draft uh, in 2015. Hasn't shown an ability to win from the pocket yet. Protected by play-action-based short passing game that held linebackers and cornerbacks at bay. Internal clock is a mess. Has marginal anticipation and appears to be lacking in ability to read defenses and create a pre-snap plan. Slow getting through progressions, taking 125 sacks in three years. Inconsistent weight transfer on throws, which affects accuracy and velocity. Needs to reset feet while swiveling from side to side while scanning for next target. Gets crowded in pocket rather than sliding to open space. Short arms too many throws. Ineffective, inaccurate passer outside the pocket with the lowest completion percentage in the Pac-12 while scrambling. 32.6% in college. He misses opportunities to climb pocket while keeping eyes downfield rather than taking off as a runner. If not for the mention of the Pac-12 in there, that could read like a scouting report of Brett Hundley so far this season. Uh, You have heard Mike McCarthy mention the internal clock issues, uh, just clock issues, getting things processed quickly before the snap. That pre-snap planning, that inability to scan from target to target. Just watch how often you see Brett Hundley take the snap and look only at the very first receiver he sees before deciding to roll out and just keep rolling and rolling and rolling until he reads the sideline or take off and run. It's only ever that first guy. You never see the progression through the reads. This is limiting the Packers so much that I wonder if they can they can ever really recover on offense without having to make a switch to a different quarterback. We wrote about the sunk cost idea when Hundley took over as the starting quarterback. And I think that is still a huge concern for the Packers, and it's becoming an impediment for the Packers. It almost seems like there's no chance that they are going to move on from Hundley just because they've convinced themselves that he can become a starting quarterback. Maybe he can, but he is not one right now, and he's proving that week in and week out. He's a big part of the problem, and I think the Packers need to admit it. Uh, They're only holding themselves back until then. Unfortunately, the flip side of that uh, comes into play in sort of a weird way. Uh, If the Packers are not going to make the playoffs or the Super Bowl or whatever, 
I think it makes the most sense for them to, to get a high draft pick. Why bother trying to, to be 8-8 eight and eight this year if you're not going to make the playoffs anyway? If Brett Hundley is really holding the Packers' offense back so much, uh, wouldn't leaving him in there actually put them in a position to get an even better draft pick? I'm not saying tank. I'm saying maybe he is actually executing exactly what helps the Packers the most right now by making them so they can't win any football games. Kind of a twisted thing to think about. Uh, I'm not sure I like that line of thinking, and I don't think the Packers would ever out-and-out tank. But if it helps the Packers to get a higher draft pick, maybe Brett Hundley is actually helping them in a in a sort of backhanded way right now. I don't know. Could be. Before we talk about Dom Capers, uh, I want to alert you to some things that are going on on our Patreon.com page. Patreon is a real easy way for you to support the Power Sweep com and blue 58 look we're a real small operation here everything that is is going on with this site happens by two guys um all our social media all the stuff that goes on our website the website design itself uh this podcast the editing of this podcast putting the podcast up on our hosting page all of that happens by just two people uh and so the the burdens for doing that fall on two people as well unfortunately there are also some financial things that come along with that we have to pay for, for hosting this podcast. We've got to pay for hosting a website and to, to do all of the things uh, between here and there that, that get all this content on the website and to you. We're asking you to help us defray some of those costs. And a real easy way to do that is patreon.com. It's a site designed specifically for people who are trying to help people who are making things that you care to see. Hopefully you care to see and hear the things that we are producing um, in this entire enterprise. And if you do so, I would ask you to consider supporting us at patreon.com. A dollar a month is going to give us everything that you need or that we need to help us get this stuff done. And it's going to get you a little bit of something too, just uh, contributing any amount of money, preferably a dollar a month, but you can go more than that if you want, gets you 25% off everything that we sell via our store on Teespring. So what I would do if I was you, throw in $1, uh, collect the difference, uh, on the next thing that you buy on Teespring. You help us twice uh, and you get it for less money. You get, a, a, I guess, bonus help for for you and for us um, at The Power Sweep. Check it out. Patreon.com slash The Power Sweep. Real easy to do. We would appreciate it a lot. Thank you very much for your consideration. I hope we see your support there very soon. Blue 58 As far as I can remember... We have never flat out called for anybody's firing before or even after a season. Uh, we've been doing, I've been doing this in some way, shape, or form every season since 2012 and writing about the Packers online even before then. As you'll know, if you spend any amount of time on the internet related to the Packers, the fire capers movement has been going on for a long time. I would say at least since 2012 for sure perhaps since 2011. If you noticed the title of this episode, you've probably guessed what my conclusion is going to be. But I think we need to approach this issue in the right way. couple things here. We need to determine why Dom Capers is being fired. You can't just fire him because you don't like an outcome or you don't like how people are performing. It may not be his fault. If you're, if you're going to fire a coach, you've got to make sure you're firing him for outcomes that are within the control of a coach. 
Second, we are going to try to come to these conclusions based on what we consider to be the right numbers. Total defense is a bad stat. Whenever you hear somebody on ESPN say the Packers are ranked X in defense, what they're referring to is a stat called total defense. It is just basically the amount of yards that a defense gives up. It's bad. It, it does not give a good representation of what a defense is actually doing. We're going to look at three areas that I consider representative of, of how a defense is really doing. Points, takeaways, and the football outsiders stat, defense adjusted value over average, or DVOA. Basically, defensive efficiency. There's a lot more that goes into it than that. I would research it if you have further questions. I think it's an indicative stat of how a defense is performing, and I think it's, it's going to be helpful to our discussion here. Third, I would like to remind you that I have defended Dom Capers at length in the past. Saying he should be fired now should not be considered me changing my mind about those previous situations. I am very much into making the best call you can given the information you have at the time, and it's pointless to second-guess those decisions once they've been made. You can reevaluate in the future, but don't, don't at me or find things I've written before or said before about supporting Dom Capers. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. We're talking about right now. Those takes, such as they may be, stand on their own. This is something entirely new. Before we get to why I think Dom Capers should be fired, I think we need to look at his tenure here in Green Bay. And this is going to comprise the bulk of our discussion here. Let's start at the very beginning, a very fine place to start. 2009 and 2010. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these. These are the first two years Dom Capers was the defensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. They were incredible. Very, very good defenses these two years. Both Super Bowl caliber defenses. In 2009, had they gotten past the, the Cardinals in the wild card round, that team was good enough to win a Super Bowl based on their defense alone. They had the defensive player of the year in the entire league that season in 2009. 2010, Clay Matthews, the defensive player of the year, runner-up. 2010, they win a Super Bowl, in large part because their defense is very, very reliable. Tons and tons of takeaways. 2011, I think you could really argue the Fire Capers movement begins. That year, the Packers are 19th in scoring defense. They are first in takeaways, and they are 25th in that DVOA stat that I mentioned. This year, they lose Nick Collins in Week 2. But aside from that, the defense remains largely healthy throughout the balance of the season. The 2011 season ends with the 15-1 Green Bay Packers losing at home in the divisional round against the New York Giants 37-20. Utter destruction of the Packers in this one. This was a year where health did not play a big factor. They should have been rested and ready to go to take on the Giants at home. But this team was just bad on defense, and it's hard to say exactly why. They had a lot of good players on defense. Charles Woodson still very good. Tremont Williams was still there. The safeties were respectable, if not spectacular. It's hard to say why things did not really work out on defense. I do remember their pass rush was not very good against the Giants that year in the playoffs, and the Giants were tailor-made to beat the Packers. Their pass rush was terrific. They could get plenty of pressure on Aaron Rodgers, rushing just four. But the defense should have been able to do a little bit better against Eli Manning, and they just didn't. Uh, if you want to get mad at Dom Capers for this one, I think that is a defensible position. That's not going to be the case, mind you, 
for a few years moving out, uh, moving on from that point. In 2012, we find one of those situations. The Packers that year on defense were 11th in scoring, 18th in takeaways, and 8th overall in DVOA. Based on a study I did of Super Bowl contenders uh, a couple months back, this is a defense that you would consider Super Bowl caliber. The Packers were good enough to win a Super Bowl with this defense. This year, the Packers held opponents to 24 points or fewer 12 of the 18 times they played. The season ended, however, in spectacular fashion against Colin Kaepernick and the 49ers on the road in San Francisco. If you think about this game now, it's probably more or less reduced to a highlight reel of Kaepernick just running away from the Packers' defense, but that is really not the whole story. This game was 24-24 to with 8 minutes and 25 seconds left in the third quarter when Packers tied the game at that point. Those 24 points for the San Francisco 49ers include a gift-wrapped touchdown courtesy of one Jeremy Ross, who muffed a punt inside the Packers' 10-yard line. The 49ers more than happy to punch it in from there. I think you could make a case that Capers, uh, Capers and the Packers had very little reason to expect this level of read option play from the 49ers. To this point in the season, Kaepernick had never run more than nine times in a single game. And if you want to blame Capers for this game, I think it's fine, but you do have to consider that for the bulk of this season, they were a very, very good defense. And I think this loss to Kaepernick was as much about timing as anything else. Had they played Kaepernick and the 49ers in the regular season and lost a game like this, you probably wouldn't have thought about it twice. And had they not ended up matched up against Kaepernick and the 49ers in the playoffs, they probably would have headed to at least the NFC Championship game. I like the Packers against anybody else that was in the in the playoffs that year. I think this was just a bad matchup for the Packers. And uh, it just it was a bummer of an ending. And uh, if you want to blame Capers for just this one game, that's fine. But they had a good defense that year. You cannot argue that. They, they were a good defense that year. 2013, though, a step backwards. 24th in scoring, 21st in takeaways, 31st in DVOA. Not a good defense, but I think Capers gets unfair blame for what happened at the end of this season, and I'll explain why. The Packers lost at home again, uh, at home in the wildcard round, again to Colin Kaepernick and the 49ers. But, but, this was not a defensive meltdown for the Packers. You cannot blame the defense for this game as a whole. Casey Hayward, on injured reserve for this game. Clay Matthews, out of the lineup for this game. Andy Malumba, playing meaningful defensive snaps in the playoffs for the Packers in this game. 89% of the defensive snaps, to be exact. Nevertheless, the Packers held Colin Kaepernick, his read option, and the 49ers to 23 points at Lambeau Field, which absolutely seven days a week should be enough to win a football game when you have Aaron Rodgers under center for your team. Do not forget that Micah Hyde dropped what could have been a game-winning interception on the 49ers' final drive. Also do not forget that Aaron Rodgers had one of those games that made people question exactly how good he could be in the playoffs. His stat line this game, 17 of 26, 177 yards, and one touchdown. Two times the Packers kicked field goals from inside the 20-yard line, including a 24-yarder with just over five minutes left. 24-yard field goal. That is from the seven-yard line. 
it's very difficult, considering all of these things, for me to blame this one on Capers and the defense. They may not have been spectacular throughout the balance of the 2013 season, but they sure as heck were not the reason that the Packers lost in the playoffs that year. In 2014, the Packers were very good on defense again. They were 13th in scoring, 18th in takeaway, 16th in DVOA, including an 11th overall ranking in that stat against the pass. This is borderline of what we would consider a Super Bowl caliber defense. To me, this is a should-have-had-it type season. This is a year they should have gone to the Super Bowl. And it all comes down to the 2014 NFC Championship game, as I'm sure you are aware. Yes, the ending was bad. However, taken as a whole, I think it's again difficult to blame Dom Capers and the defense for this one. The offense ran six plays from inside the Seattle Seahawks' 10-yard line in the first half and only managed two field goals. Aaron Rodgers, 178 yards on 34 passes, including two interceptions. One of those should have come back. Michael Bennett was offsides, and Aaron Rodgers threw up a ball in the end zone because he thought he was getting a flag flag because Michael Bennett was offsides. I have not let it go yet, clearly, but he was offsides. Sure, in the end, this result looks bad for the defense, but overall, if the offense does its job in this game, This looks like an all-time great defensive performance and one that we should be singing the praises of Dom Capers to this day, celebrating another Super Bowl win for the Packers after they went on and took care of the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Do not forget things like four interceptions for the, the, the defense in this game. Do not forget the putrid offensive performance in the first half of this game. This one does not go on the defense. It looks like that in the end but it should never have come to that point. 2015, getting close to the end here. The Packers' defense is 12th in scoring. They are 19th in takeaways and 9th in DVOA. This is a pretty good defense again, but this is the Aaron Rodgers swoon season. He was very bad for most of this year, but the Packers' defense actually kept them in games that they shouldn't have been in. 23 points or less allowed by the Packers' defense in 13 of 18 games this year, and the Packers managed to lose three times in which the defense allowed 20 points or less. But of course, again, the ending. The Packers lost 26-20 to to the Cardinals in a game they had no business competing in. They somehow held the Cardinals to just 20 points, despite getting annihilated by the Cardinals only about a month earlier. And Aaron Rodgers was tremendous down the stretch, playing with like I think they're, they're receivers on the final play of the game. Let's see, top of my head, it was Jeff Janis, Jared Aberderis, James Jones, and Richard Rodgers going out into the pass pattern. Not ideal, I think you would describe that as. Unfortunately, the Packers never had a chance on offense in this game. Coin flipped, kept Rodgers from getting the ball, and an honest-to-goodness defensive meltdown uh, allowed that 75-yard catch-and-run by uh, Larry Fitzgerald, gifted the Cardinals that game pretty much. If you want to blame Capers in that one, I guess, but don't forget that the Packers wouldn't even have been in that point had it not been for a terrific defensive season from the Packers. This is when it starts to unravel. In 2016, the Packers were 21st in scoring, 11th in takeaways, and 20th in DVOA, despite a lot of injuries. Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, really dragged this team down the stretch, and that has always been the narrative. The Packers... Defense just cannot support Aaron Rodgers, and he's just dragging this team to the playoffs year after year after year. Other than 2011, this 
2016 might have been the only season that was true, and he might not have had to drag them to the playoffs had he actually played well in the first half of the season. That's a discussion for a different day. The 2016 NFC Championship game was inexcusable. Um, it just a complete meltdown on the biggest stage of the season, aided in large part by an injury-ravaged team. But to me, this was the first time in the playoffs that a defense seemed completely prepared for Dom Capers. The Falcons were an ultra-high-powered offense, but they knew exactly what the Packers were going to be doing. And that seems to have carried over to 2017. So far this season, the Packers are 22nd in scoring, they are 8th in takeaways, and they are 20th in DVOA. So, having looked at all that, why fire Dom Capers now? First and foremost... Simple mistakes have just become all too common. People getting mixed up in the secondary. People forgetting to come out onto the field. Playing the wrong personnel scheme. uh, Not communicating well. uh, Making difficult decisions, perhaps bad decisions, about who is making the defensive calls on Sundays. Giving that responsibility to to ha-ha Clinton Dix after Morgan Burnett got injured. Those things are, are week one fixes. I can understand that in the in the first week of a regular season when you're still working out some of the kinks, getting ready for a new year. But at this point in the season, you just cannot be having those issues. It it there is no defense for that. Secondly, I wonder if schematically Dom Capers really makes sense in the NFL anymore. One of my Acme Packing Company colleagues, Paul Noonan, wrote a great piece about Capers' scheme. I'd like to read two paragraphs for you. Dom Capers has a sound philosophy based on sound mathematical principles. His defense focuses on preventing big chunk plays. The goal is to make an offense execute a high number of plays to move down the field. As the offense is forced to run more plays, the odds of them committing turnovers or errors increases, and if you create enough turnovers, sacks, bad penalties, and so on, you will have a great defense. Stepping aside for a second. This is the defense that we saw in 2009 and 2010. Packers got sacks, forced turnovers, um, and so on. They, they prevented those big plays, and they forced opposing teams into big mistakes. But as Paul points out, the NFL has changed. Every team now runs these quick, fast, short passes uh, to receivers like Golden Tate, as we saw on Monday, and their running backs, as the Packers do with Ty Montgomery and uh and Aaron Jones, and whoever else they have. You don't see these deep five, seven-step drops anymore. Teams really going vertical, trying to get down the field, these big, long passes. You don't have the opportunity. They're not banking on those big chunk plays. So building a defense around taking them away doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Paul continues, Going conservative with regards to interceptions does have a cost for offenses in that passes tend to be shorter, drives tend to be longer, and big plays tend to be fewer. But most offenses are still as efficient as they were in more carefree days. Teams are counting on the ability to hit a higher percentage of short passes to repeatedly move the sticks, something that Capers' defense actively tries to encourage. If your defensive philosophy is encouraging an already existing offensive trend, you may have some difficulties. I think that's what we're seeing from the Packers, and Capers has so far been resistant to change. More on that in a second. My third point as to why Capers should be fired There is plenty of talent on this defense. Even if you're not hitting on absolutely every pick on defense, you should be able to make something out of the group 
that the Packers have, a group in which they have invested this much draft capital. To wit, six first-round picks currently on defense. A second-round pick. It would be two, but Quentin Rollins is hurt. Three third-round picks. Five fourth-round picks. You should be able to make something about out of that group, even if not every one of those players is great. Say you only hit on half of those six first-round picks. That's still three first-rounders on your defense. You should be able to make something out of that. Finally, all of these problems, simply corrected errors, a scheme that doesn't seem to be entirely with the times, uh, a defense with talent but little results. These problems should have been corrected by now. My ultimate thesis, I guess, is that the fire capers era to me really spans from 2016 to the present. Capers really wasn't the problem for most of the time from 2012 through 2015. A solid four seasons in there, and you could probably throw 2011 in there as well. It was just a weird oddball sort of season. But in 2016, they struggled with a lot of these things, and he couldn't fix it and hasn't fixed it, and they haven't made any significant fixes this year. If the Packers are not a failed franchise, just screwing up literally every one of their draft picks, all of their free agent decisions, and they are not. They categorically are not. I know it's fashionable to point out guys who are playing well other places or or picks that should have gone differently, but they are not a failed franchise. They are not the Browns. I, I hate that comparison. It's inaccurate. It's It's just not true. But it seems like the results should be better than this on defense. Maybe it's time, and I think it is time, for someone else to get a shot. I think the Packers should fire Dom Capers now, see if one of their coaches already in the building can do any better, and if not, bring in an external candidate this offseason. That's my case, and I'm sticking to it. While I've got you here, and I know this was a bit of a long downer of an episode with a lot of stats and a lot of numbers, and this season is not going how any of us really predicted. But I'd like to impress on you something that I think is near and dear to my heart and my philosophy with doing this podcast, doing the powersweep.com, all of that. And I think I can speak for Gary here too. This can still be fun. I know it's not fun to see the team that you like to watch lose. I know it's especially not fun to see them lose in the manner that they are losing this season. I know it's especially not fun to see Aaron Rodgers on the sideline with a glum look on his face because his collarbone has a whole bunch of screws and a couple plates in it. I know that's not fun. But this can still be fun. You can still find enjoyment in a team that isn't as good as you hoped. There are still interesting things to watch. There are still players who are developing, uh, schemes being run, stats being compiled. All of that is still happening. And you can find interesting things to learn about and watch, even on a team that isn't very good. I know that because there are fans out there who have not been as lucky as the Packers fans have been, and their teams have not been good in a long time. You should still be able to find things that you enjoy. Find a player who you don't know that much about and research him. Learn everything that you can about him. Learn something new about the way that the Packers do things on offense. Learn about uh, the schemes that Dom Capers has been using throughout his career and come up with a, a new informed theory of why things are the way that they are. Just learn things and embrace things and, and just try to find some joy in 
in the little things about the season. The big thing, the Super Bowl, the playoffs, that is that might be gone. It's probably gone. But you should still be able to find some enjoyment, even if it's something just so little as enjoying the uniforms that the, the players are wearing on Sunday and hoping that both teams play hard. I think that's possible. We're going to be doing it here at the Power Sweep and on Blue 58, and I would love it if you would join us. This can be fun. Let's have some fun together. That's about a show for this week. I'm sorry for keeping you a little bit extra, but I hope it was worthwhile. You can find us, as always, at thepowersweep.com. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter as well. Just search The Power Sweep at both of those fine websites. And if you are so inclined, you may email us at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Should you be so interested, you may support us financially via patreon.com slash thepowersweep or by checking out our store on teespring.com. Uh, another way to support the show, give us a review on iTunes if you would like. There is no pressure there, but we would love it if you would leave some of your thoughts about our show uh, at our iTunes page. We always love to hear from you, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, email, whatever. Sending us a, a, a raven, a, a pigeon, uh, whatever. Just get in contact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this show and the Power Suite better and uh, will help us all in our quest to become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I have been your host, John Meerdig. We will see you next week on Blue 58. Mm -hmm.